Gresham College presents The Grey's Inn Reading by Baroness Kennedy of the Shores, QC. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. Well, yesterday we saw the state opening of Parliament, and I'm afraid it was a rather strange, empty affair, um, because, of course, it didn't have as much of the flummery as normal, uh, and, not, and the pomp and, pomp and circumstance was greatly reduced, um, after an election which, I would say, uh, did not have to be called. Um, and just last Monday, we saw the start of negotiations to take us out of the European Union after a referendum that might not have been necessary either. Um, and we have a Prime Minister um, who really came into her role with hugely favourable polling and now um, is in a parlous place. So these are strange times. Um, whether they're the worst of times, I wouldn't say, but I think that they are pretty strange times and, uh, and strange in this is the fact that we are struggling with um, repositioning ourselves in relation to Europe and indeed the world. What is becoming ever more clear is that the negotiations uh, to leave Europe are not going to be a day in the country for our nation. Leaders of the 27 European Union partner countries laid down the gauntlet after we triggered after Article 50. No discussions, they said, on a trade deal would take place until there were positive signs, signs of progress on European Union citizens' rights and the rights of our citizens in the, Europe, the rest of the European Union. Uh, there was also insistence that there is a headway on the border in Ireland and that we have to have some level of agreement on our commitment to the divorce bill. That is our contribution to the costs that we've incurred. People seem to be surprised, why should there be any cost? But you've got to remember that we've had members of parliament over in the European Parliament who have retired and now have pensions that they get from Europe, and it might be rather um, uh, questionable as to whether Europe should continue paying for that and that we shouldn't have a contribution to make to it. Or our civil servants, whom we sent over to be part of uh, the European Commission, or many people who have taken roles in Europe who, of course, um, have... Contribu have contributed, but who have pensions and pension rights. Um, so there are going to be those issues. There are also issues of um, uh, matters that we kind of uh, were at the heart of um, pressing, from which we've benefited for a long time, but which will proceed into the future, and that there has to be some uh, uh, timetabling of when one withdraws one fin one's financial commitments there. And so there are debts, as well as, for example, uh, and I chair the European Union uh, Select Committee's Justice um, uh, Group, and, uh, and we took evidence recently from um, uh, parliamentarians from the Baltics, and they were pointing out to us that Britain had been very much at the heart of pressing for um, a high-speed uh, train link uh, from the Baltics all the way down 
which will come all the way down and goes all the way down to Spain, but the whole thing is that it then, when it reaches sort of Brussels, that you can then come to Britain and that you can go off to parts of Germany. Um, but it, basically, it's a linking system. And this high-speed rail um, was pressed upon um, the, the European Union by us, partly because of the value it has for NATO. Um, because, of course, the Baltic uh, region is, has great anxieties about uh, uh, the pre predatory uh, uh, positions taken by Mr. Putin, and they've watched what's happened in the Ukraine, and, uh, and that, that worries them. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that we should be aware of was that the railways in the Baltics were all built by the Russians, and so they have a different gauge from railways um, uh, in the rest of Europe. And so uh, having a high-speed rail link will make it much easier, not just to travel and to trade and to take goods in and out and so on, but also if, if things ever got tricky and we needed supply lines, then it's something that people thought might be a rather good idea. Uh, and so... Um, we encourage the European Union to enter into this really very expensive project. And so, the, 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 not surprisingly, the Baltic states say, well, you know, we, we want you to help contribute to this too. Um, um, and, uh, and so there are all sorts of things like that where there are going to be serious discussions around what are our financial commitments. So what um, the... 27 other nations have done is that they've basically set some conditions precedent um, and some of them of course haven't fitted with our original game plan which was that we wanted the order of business to be somewhat different and to be able to start talking about trade and the kind of trading relationship we might have into the future um, um, you know alongside these other things. Um, it was agreed of course that the rights of European Union citizens living and working here um, um, as well as ours living elsewhere, we were, we were saying that we wanted that to be given some priority and that it should be at the top of the list. Um, what is said by those other European countries, the 27, is that there is a document on the table, but that we, Europe, the UK, have not been prepared to sign it. Um, the reason for that hasn't been given, but I suggest it's all to do with the law. The problem, I think, for our Prime Minister is that at every turn her, head's, her head hits up against this hard wall of law um, and the role of the European Court of Justice. And of course, one of the kind of key things that has been at the heart of uh, the Brexiteers' position is that we're going to have nothing to do with uh, European courts, that somehow um, that, that is a, a real interference with uh, UK sovereignty and that no court should be telling us what to do. Um, she has cornered herself by insisting that the UK withdraws totally from that court, and not just the court, but its jurisprudence, or acquis, as, as it's called. No one seems to have explained adequately um, to the hardest line lined uh, folk on, on, on leaving Europe that, in fact, if you have any kind of cross-border rights and contracts and you want some level of collaboration with Europe, you have to have cross-border law and regulations. And if you have cross-border law, you have to have supranational courts to deal with disputes. It's fairly obvious to most folk who are in the law. Even the WTO has a sort of disputes court. You might seek to disguise the fact by calling it by another name, but in the end, you need rules as to, condu as to conduct and arbiters for disagreement. 
The Prime Minister, of course, has had some bad experiences um, with uh, European courts. She had a belly full of uh, the European Court of Human Rights um, over the, her uh, uh, inability to deport Abu Qatada, the Islamic fundamentalist preacher, to Jordan. And it always has amazed me the extent to which we have failed to make it clear, certainly to uh, the editors of uh, tabloid newspapers, that the European Court of Human Rights and the European Court of Justice are two different things. Until very, very recently, it seemed it was impossible to, to, to get this message through. Um, but anyway, the European Court of Human Rights um, was, was a, an absolute thorn in Mrs May's side as Home Secretary because, um, of course, she wanted to get rid of Islamic fundamentalist preachers. Who wouldn't? I would have in her place too. Um, but unfortunately, uh, Jordan's use of torture, which is somewhat endemic, um, on political opponents um, uh, proved a handicap to his expulsion. Um, and so um, it was a problem. And uh, in fact, one of my colleagues in chambers, um, um, Edward Fitzgerald, was representing Abu Ghattadi, he's a great lawyer, and he took the case to the European Court um, saying, you know, we can't return a man to a place where he's, he's going to be tortured. And the European Court upheld that. We, we've signed up, you know, for, uh, uh, you know, we've signed the conventions against the use of torture. So, you know, um, the European Court wasn't doing something really very radical in saying that. Um, However, then it became clear that um, we, we, we did something that's called seeking diplomatic assurances, where you can go to a country, and it's a, 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 a diplomatic process that has evolved, of seeking from that country assurances that they will not torture the person that you are wanting to deport to them. And, and um, there's some, some of our senior judges have uh, publicly expressed their misgivings about this, because... The idea that we're saying, we don't mind you torturing anybody else, but just don't torture this guy or, or we're going to have trouble. There's something slightly kind of morally dubious about that. But uh, in any event, we, we've started using this process of, uh, of obtaining diplomatic assurances. And I've been involved in a number of cases where, where that's been done in order to deport uh, people. Usually I'm representing the people who are being deported. Anyway, um, but so, so uh, we, we, we made an agreement with Jordan and uh, that he would be returned. Um, um, but then it became clear that the if he was put on trial, the evidence of the people who, would, who were going to be um, testifying against him, it had been secured by torture. The evidence that was, would, the case against him was built on out in Jordan, for which we you see we'd given him asylum um, from Jordan. And so the he was, if he was going to be put on trial in Jordan, it was all based on torture. So again, Ed Fitzgerald works through the system, takes it to the European Court of Human Rights, and again, the European Court of Human Rights says, you can't send him to a place where the evidence against him is based on torture. Even if, you know, if he's not being tortured, if other folk have been tortured to get the evidence, not good. So um, Mrs. May got very frustrated, very cross, very angry about it, and I'm afraid that um, uh, although it's quite a, a different uh, legal regime, somehow the words Europe and court in the same sentence are a problem for Mrs. May, and so um, she um, uh, has really set a very strong position on not wanting us to be involved with the European Court of Justice. Now, I sit on, as I've said, on the European uh, Union Committee for the House of Lords, um, it's a very effective select committee, I mean, with a long reputation, you know, going back many, all, all, you know, a significant part of the time that we've been part of the European Union, reviewing regulations and looking at um, the, the opt-in and opt-out uh, arrangements that we've made. Um, uh, and we actually had developed, I have to tell you, rather an interesting position where on many things that we considered difficult, we'd created opt-outs for ourselves. 
And so um, we were part of the European Union, but with quite significantly uh, different arrangements for us that were not applying to all the others. Um, one of the areas that my committee, the Justice Committee, was involved with was reviewing sanctions. Very important um, thing that we had to flag up to the government. You know, we, the sanctions regimes from the European Union have been very effective in, in, um, in dealing with, for example, Iran, in dealing re more recently with the whole business of Russia and, and, uh, and the Ukraine. And, and doing it together gives it far more power and impact. And, uh, and so we started to say, oh, hold on a minute, have you has anybody spoken to you about the fact that the sanctions regimes are going to be affected by all of this? And so now we've got a piece of legislation in this Queen's speech which is actually about sanctions, about having to create a new separate own sanctions um, uh, uh, system. So uh, uh, the, there, there are whole sets of things like that that were suddenly we were becoming aware of not being part of the great debate about leaving Europe and, uh, and certainly not in the minds of many people um, when it came to the business of voting. So before the referendum, we had been involved in taking evidence on a number of different matters. I mean, the committee, the European Union uh, Committee, has actually produced before um, the referendum a, a thing about about what the process would be. And it was actually has been incredibly useful to government. Um, and we took evidence from Europe, you know, lawyers and from uh, practitioners and so on to make sure that we'd got it right and, um, and it was a, a, it's become a, something of a, an important blueprint for people who needed to be inducted into understanding what the processes would be for, for leaving Europe. Um, in the aftermath, already the European Union Select Committee has created 27 reports. Just think about that, 27 reports since last June. My committee is on to its third report, and the first report that we did was on um, acquired rights. Because during the debate around um, uh, our, our leaving Europe before the referendum, when people say, well, what's going to happen to all these people that live here and they've lived here for a number of years and whatever, and set up home, bought houses, got stocks and shares and blah, and work in the city, and what, or work in the National Health, what about all these people? And what they were told was that, you know, they, they, under international law, they would have acquired rights. So um, one of the first things we did was we said, well, let's look into this business of acquired rights. Well, we'll get there in a minute and I'll tell you all about it. But... Um, after the referendum, um, I, chairing that committee, received really heart-rending letters from people in high anxiety about their status as Europeans living in this country. I mean, I mean it, was, it, was, it was so interesting because they, they were, didn't know where to turn. And, uh, and so they looked at the European Union uh, um, Committee in the House of Lords and they ended up, uh, a whole lot of the, the, the mail came to me. And you had people who were married to British men or to British women. Uh, they'd had families. They'd, they were Germans or French or whatever. And they um, were and had kept the passport for, because they were Europeans. It was the European um, uh, um, thing that covered them all. They were all European citizens. And, um, and they hadn't ever imagined that there would ever become a time when such a schism would take place. And, uh, and then when they did try, suddenly, you know, confronted with this, to uh, uh, apply for European, for UK citizenship, um, women particularly faced a, a, a serious problem because it turned out that any time when a person who's here living um, and working under the European Union arrangements, certainly not understood and, and appreciated by, by most people, was that if you come and you're working, you can access our healthcare system. If you come here and you're not working, you're supposed to go and get yourself private health insurance. 
well, of course, many of these wives of, of, of British men had come here and they had used the National Health Service, had babies and so on, um, and some of them had taken time out of work. And it had never occurred to them that they were required to get themselves private health insurance. And so suddenly when they were wanting to apply for citizenship, they found that actually they fell foul of the fact and were getting letters telling them that they were not going to be able to get British citizenship. So um, they, they, there was serious, serious anxiety. And you will know some of those stories because they were, they were published in some of the um, better newspapers. Um, but they were... They were um, uh, it, was, it was a real source of anxiety and concern to people. Um, and, and so we started looking at this and said, decided, let's have a look and call evidence on the whole business of uh, do people have acquired rights? Another of the letters, just before I move on to the acquired rights situation, the letter, I had a letter from Spain. It was really heartrending because it was from it, lots of people um, wrote who had retired to Spain. You know, people who were you know, had holidayed, a lot, holidayed in Spain uh, a lot during their, their you know, middle years and then decide when they retire that they're going to go there, often if they've got chronic arthritis or something, but also, you know, just living in a warm climate. And when they got there, they discovered that, um, you know, they'd sell their home in, in Kent, go, go and buy somewhere there, give them a little po pocket of money to live uh, decently. Uh, they couldn't possibly afford to come back and buy another house now with the, the way that prices, house prices have, have changed in Britain. Um, but this man wrote to me about how his wife uh, then has uh, descended into serious dementia. Uh, she's, uh, he'd looked after her at home, but she's now in a Spanish care home, paid for by the Spanish in Spain, you know, Spain providing it. It's a local authority uh, uh, care home. And we have a number of pensioners in exactly that situation. And their partner's in a care home with Alzheimer's, with dementia. They visit them every day, as, as, as you would. And they're saying, what's going to happen to us? What's going to be the arrangement? Now, we've been told repeatedly in the run-up to the referendum, as I said, that, that people would have acquired rights in international law. And we took evidence from distinguished international uh, lawyers, um, from European Union lawyers and so on, and the concept of acquired rights didn't apply um, in these circumstances. Uh, it, was, it was really a, um, a, around, by and large, um, it's, it's nation to nation stuff, particularly where um, communist country, countries had um, basically um, requisitioned factories or buildings that had been owned by people um, overseas and, uh, and the, the requirement for there to be compensation and the like. But it was a nation to nation thing, it was not about individual citizens. And a whole sets of international law experts came and testified to us that, they, they were, that, that individual citizens were not going to be covered by this situation. The European Convention on Human Rights, that other source of great horror to so many, and particularly the Daily Mail, um, would in fact might provide some succor to, to, on family rights. Article 8 might provide some cover um, uh, if you, for example, um, that uh, you uh, want to stay with your family and you're a, a German woman who married a British man and so on. That might give you some, especially if your children are now British and so on, while you try and sort out your citizenship problem. So suddenly we were very lucky that we had the ECHR and I heard people who were proud Brexiteers claiming how marvellous it was that we did have the ECHR. However, the haggle over citizens' rights is undoubtedly going to be a very tough one. Um, and, uh, and it's tough because it really does move into that whole area about which there's so much sensitivity, which is around immigration. 
The protections which are offered to all citizens of the European Union include free including free movement and residence, equal treatment, a wide range of other rights regarding work, education, social security and health are a key part of the negotiations. Uh, and you've got to remember, here in Britain we have 3.5 million citizens from other member states and 1.2 million of our citizens are living on the continent. Our government has said that it will make a generous offer. You'll have heard it on the Today programme this morning. We're making a generous offer on citizens' rights. But it has never said it's ready to secure all the rights that European Union citizens now have. The rights Britons on the continent say that they want, that's our folk living in Spain and places, say that they want secured are those to acquire citizenship, study, have their academic and professional qualifications recognised, they want the right to work, they want to run a business in places, and they want to move freely between European Union member states. They want freedom of movement. They don't want to be what's called landlocked. They want to also receive healthcare, pensions and other social benefits. That's our folk living uh, in the other parts of Europe. Um, so they want to retain their freedom of movement. Now the European Union 27 have accepted that list. That's the list that we have not been prepared to sign up to, the agreement that was on the table. Um, but the European 27 want it to be reciprocally recognised by the UK. Now, it's being argued that on the 29th of March 2019, Brexit Day, all citizens living legally here be deemed legally resident and be given the right to permanent residency after five years and to full equal treatment with British nationals with regard to jobs and benefits. The European Union wants those rights to exist, but wants them to exist in perpetuity and to apply to current and future family members, no matter their nationality. So if some, a European, if, you know, French family are living here, there's a banker and his wife and she teaches and whatever, and their children, and their children are still young, but in a years to come they decide to get married to somebody, that they should be entitled to do that as if they were European Union citizens, and bring in, so the rights holder uh, 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 is the, the person who's living here, and after Brexit, that they should be able to continue to apply those rights to family members after uh, uh, when those children grow up and they marry somebody, um, and, but also that those rights should continue after divorce or death. You have to think of the circumstances where that could be. You know, that somebody decides to, uh, has been here and has lived all their life and whatever, and then decide to uh, remarry. Um, and so, or to bring a child that they had by previous marriage to Britain. So there are serious issues which really are going to be very problematic because this is an immigration-focused government and they might find it very hard to swallow some of those things that other European countries are happy to have included for our citizens. And, uh, and it's very much around the business of the right to family life. Um, so, again, I had a communication, a communication from a man who was, is married to an Italian. And his uh, father-in-law had died um, in his late 70s. And his Italian mother-in-law, uh, uh, who only had the one child, uh, a daughter, um, they brought her over to live with them um, and uh, to spend her final years with the family and her grandchildren. Um, and, uh, and he's now saying, so what's, what's the position for her? Um, and people are asking, what's going to be the position 
uh, about my son by a previous marriage. Um, um, and as I say, the child who marries someone else. The family ties issue is also problematic because it's created an anomaly in law because it's considerably easier for European Union citizens to bring a non-European Union spouse and other immediate family into the UK than for British citizens to do that because of, we've introduced very stringent earning requirements, came in during the coalition government in 2012, um, and, uh, and those uh, um, do not apply to European Union citizens because other countries in Europe don't have that requirement. Um, and so the government and Mrs May have, a lo have long railed against uh, this fact that there's this anomaly and they want European Union citizens to face the same restrictions. And many people in, in, in this country may feel the same way. So currently there's a test case going, through the, going to the uh, European Court of Justice involving a dual national, a British-Spanish woman, and she's married an Algerian husband whom she wants to live here with her in the, in the UK. And the case has gone to Europe, and probably right in the middle of these negotiations, there will be a decision where people who are very, very uh, strong on the immigration issue are going to be, I suspect, affronted by the way that the court might decide it. So there are going to be hurdles. Another hurdle is that the European Union wants European Union citizens' rights to be monitored by the European Union Commission and enforced by the European Court of Justice or another body that follows the court's rulings. It means that European Union citizens in the UK will be able to appeal to the European Court of Justice or another body but that's relying upon the, the jurisprudence of the ECJ if their rights are not being respected, for example, by the Home Office or by the UK courts. And so the climb down here would be huge because we've heard all that stuff about we want to bring back control to our own courts and we don't want anything to do with courts over there. So we, that is going to be a very fraught and hugely difficult thing to negotiate. Now, all the preliminary matters thrown onto the table by the European Union leaders involve legal commitments. I mean, virtually all of them. We have contractual obligations from which we can't uh, lawfully walk away. And we know it's because law matters. So all the calls to cut and run without paying our money uh, a penny into you know, the Brexit settlement are not going to work, um, and, uh, and certainly the 27 are not going to hold that. And of course, it will be seen by many people as being there holding us to ransom, when in fact it's in many ways almost about contractual obligation, but certainly about ethical obligation. And then there's Ireland. The European Union feels very involved with the Irish border question. The European Union role in the peace negotiations should not be underestimated. Um, much European Union time and resource went into securing an end to the violence. And I know this because I did many of the Irish cases and I was to some extent involved in some of that business of uh, um, uh, when steps were being taken to try and get um, conciliation there. Ireland's sectarian divide became submerged, happily submerged, in an overarching European identity, which made it possible for Ireland to function with no visible border, because everybody was European. And, for example, I only recently I had, um, it was being pointed out by um, the Irish ambassador that the Irish dairy industry is likely to be devastated by any return to a hard border because dairy herds are located north and south, carry gold, your butter. I mean, basically, the shop floor crosses um, an invisible line 
packaging happens on one side of the border, you know, churning or whatever somewhere else. And so, and so they're saying, you know, this is really going to be, um, have serious consequences. And it's true of many other businesses and social ventures. The communal life throughout Ireland has been deepened by the peace agreement. And there's a real risk that any new border or customs post, you know, they'd be blown up in short order, I suspect, and the full horrors of the past would return. And you've got to understand that there are angry Republican nationalists who are feeling deeply affronted that in the interest of securing peace, the south of Ireland amended its constitution. And not many of us over here realize this. They, in, in, in the Irish constitution was a claim of right to the six counties. And they took that out. It was always, it was always a, a thorn in the side, of course, of, of, of unionists in the north. I said, you know, they're looking at us and wanting us to... Uh, and so that had to go through Parliament with the, with the high majority um, to, to change the Constitution. And it was secured through lots of effort, saying this is the only way that peace can be secured if we can t take the fears of those in the North who are unionists out away by removing this. And they did it. And then I say, well, you know, we did stuff for you, and now we're finding that we're not being accommodated in, the, in this great uh, um, uh, thing that's happening now. So we've got to be mindful of, of, of the ways in which people feel that they have a stake in this. And, uh, and certainly Europe feels that very strongly. Const the constitutional uh, issue is, is, is a very tricky one there. Increasingly, there is talk that the only possible way to preserve a soft border in Ireland is for there to be a special, separate deal to be negotiated for Northern Ireland, whatever the rest of us in the UK are doing. Um, by, for example, they're possibly having a sort of European economic area plus sort of agreement with additional border arrangements between uh, the North and the UK to prevent Ireland being a back door into the UK um, for illegal immigrants. I mean, people from other bits of Europe wanting to come that route. So none of it's going to be easy, and it's all going to be made very much more complex by the, the election outcome. Because, you know, we, we're now seeing that some of this is going to be incredibly difficult. Mrs May um, is going to have to pull together a majority, and, uh, and has taken her down the path of having conversations with the DUP, probably unnecessary because the DUP almost invariably votes with the Conservatives anyway. But, um, but there now could be trouble. Um, uh, on the question of what to do on this business of illegal migrants entering the UK if there's a soft border. And so there's talk about should we outsource, can we outsource our border controls to Dublin? And I don't see how that can work. I don't see how that can work, that people that work from Romania or Poland are questioned as they come in and, they, and they've got their European passports and they're, they're, they're quite entitled to visit Dublin without, with, with pretty ease of passage. And now they're going to be asked, but are you planning to go to, 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 uh, to cross over, to go to the UK? Well, of course, they're going to say no if they're asked. So how are you going to know? And what are you going to do uh, at that stage to prevent it? And what it's likely to mean is that, in fact, a, border, a serious border control is created between Northern Ireland and the, the rest of the UK. And unionists in Northern Ireland are not going to like that. Because that is precisely what they feel, you know, is, is a way of creating a wall that they are different, um, and so there's there's problems on that. Now the other thing is that this business of talking, we're now all talking about the European Economic Area um, as being something that we might be involved in, and that's a semi-detached position. 
that Norway, Iceland and Liechtenstein have signed up to, whereby they have the benefits of the single market but not the full commitments. However, it also has legal implications. You can't trade, as I've said, without the protection of law because things can go wrong, there can be disputes. And the EEA members have to sign up to EFTA, the European Free Trade Association. And it's a sort of supranational judicial body, as it has, um, which deals with disputes. And it sits in Luxembourg and is run largely according to, you guessed it, European Union law and European Court of Justice judgments. <clears throat> so such law is made without the input of Norway, Liechtenstein or Iceland, and yet they're bound by it. And that seems to me the worst of all options, because basically um, it means that you're not even involved in, you haven't got your own judges on the court, you haven't got the interaction that takes place in the creation of law. And uh, uh, um, so, but in preparation for the negotiations, the countries which belong to the EU delegations have been streaming through uh, um, our committee. Um, through the European Union Select Committee, and we see them all the time, delegations of parliamentarians from Germany, Holland, Denmark, the Baltics, as I've said. Um, and, uh, and they tell us that, that they're the heartbroken about all of this that we're leaving, and they say that they want a soft Brexit, um, and they want to accommodate us as much as they can. But then they say they can't understand that they meet with the Brexit committee that says that they want, that Britain wants to continue, the UK wants to continue to be part of the European arrest warrant, that we want to continue to be part of Europol, that we want to continue to be part of Eurojust, for the police and courts to collaborate on international crime, on terrorism, on trafficking, all the kind of stuff that I am um, uh, involved with, where we have a huge cl collaboration. Um, and they say to you, but they don't, but, but your people don't seem to understand that this requires a court to have the ultimate jurisdiction and for European Union law to apply because why would we want to go to your courts to have a, a dispute resolved between um, Poland and Britain over a, 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 a warrant? It seems obvious to them that cross-border collaboration requires supranational legal arrangements and they are puzzled that we uh, don't seem to understand that. that, that. They list all the vast areas of law covering the web of relationships that we have, um, from uh, you know, the financial services, trading, and, and law that covers all of this, farming, fishing, security, environment, employment. I mean, you know, maternity rights. I mean, I know that people sort of, you know, um, um, employers say they don't like regulation that comes from Europe. Well, I'm afraid one of the things that they really don't like is maternity rights, because if you're a small business, then maternity rights can be a problem. We, we have to deal with that domestically of can we find ways of you know, uh, uh, recompensing small businesses that are, are, are belaboured with this, but not take the rights away from women. Um, and so, so there the, are the real issues around this. Trading standards, consumer rights, intellectual property law, um, and, and it covers a huge array of research, entrepreneurship, invention and creativity. The European Patent Court was coming to Britain, to, 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 to be in London. It was, it's actually recently been built here in the city. It was due to be opened, in fact, this year. And I asked one of the ministers, what's going to happen to the, to the new court? And was met with a shrug. We fought like demons to get that court. And the reason that we wanted it here was because we have a long tradition in Britain of inventiveness, particularly in pharmaceuticals and biosciences. And we've often invented things and not reaped the rewards from developing them. 
Viagra is one of the ones that I always cite, um, but uh, if only we'd had a, a halfpenny for every one that's used, we'd be no treasury problems there. But having the patent court here, I was going to simplify uh, patenting for us. Before the referendum, as I've said, we, we were already on to some of these problems. But after the referendum, my, my committee has done a report on acquired rights, pointing out that international law, law is not going to help, and we'd have to have some kind of very careful consideration of what citizens' rights were going to be involved in there. We've done a report on civil and family justice, where we took evidence from many lawyers, uh, commercial lawyers, in the, in the city, but also high street lawyers who represent small businesses, concerned about the fact that um, there are processes of enforcement which are being created um, um, amongst us all in Europe, um, which are very important um, to the functioning of law. Uh, and same, same going on family justice. Um, our, our current uh, um, uh, work is on receiving evidence about consumer rights. Um, and the ways in which we have played a role in getting protections um, for consumers. For years, the British public have been subject to a, a barrage of tabloid mendacity, uh, suggesting that we are victims of an onslaught of foreign invented law and interference by foreign courts. And in fact, vast amounts of incredibly advantageous law has been created in the EU in the last 40 years. And here's the rub. We, British lawyers, have been the major contributors to that law. We have made the largest part of it. The British are good at law, and we've had a strong hand in the creation of this tapestry of law. The anti-EU regulation platoons rail against the assaults upon the British sausage, and the there's a whole business about street bananas. Well, in reality, most of the EU regulations deal with matters that go to the quality of our lives. Engine noise, the composition of paint, food additives, banking regulations, air quality, dyes that are used in clothing, safety in medicine, fertilizers, insecticides, and every commodity that we use on a daily basis. And I just want you to think, lead in paint, and what it does to children. You know, think of the scandal of, of, of drugs that are not properly tested and regulated, and what happened with thalidomide, for anybody who remembers the whole hazards of toxic fertilizers, hormones put into food that come from parts of the world where they don't bother to regulate, poisonous plastic in children's toys. And I'm not sure that China is going to be wanting to regulate and change any of that. The committee which I chair in the House of Lords has heard overwhelming evidence about the benefits to British business of being able to take a contractual matter to one of our own courts secure a judgment against a recalcitrant debtor in Poland or somewhere, and the judgment will be enforced in a court in that part of the European Union without demur. And it's the enforcement of that that is very problematic in other parts of the world. A mother of children can secure a maintenance order against a renegade father who doesn't want to, to you know, pay maintenance and who's sloped off to Italy or somewhere, and she can have the order enforced, made here, enforced in Milan distraining on his uh, income or on his property. A British father can get access to his kids ordered here and enforced in Munich. Cross-border relationships require cross-border law. And agreements on mutual enforcement are fundamental. You have a holiday accident in Spain or in Portugal and you can get a swifter resolution and compensation by virtue of European Union law. 
the language of this stuff is not very attractive. We talk about Brussels 1 and Brussels 2, which are, which are the mechanisms which allow for those enforcement procedures. Um, but these protocols work to the benefit of our citizens and ordinary citizens, not just, you know, big corporates can get the things to work for them anyway. They can get lawyers to work for them anyway. But ordinary folks, small businesses, suddenly somebody goes bust, a company that you've been dealing with and trading with in some other part of Europe, and that you are at the top of the creditors' list. I have uh, no idea, I had no idea about the extent to which we rely upon uh, 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 this law. I mean, to, to a large extent, it was, I knew about all the stuff in my field, but it has been revelatory to me and to the other lawyers who sit on my committee to see the extent of this and, and how positive and good it is. And I also did, I was taken by surprise by hearing from ambassadors who testified to the fact that, for example, I assumed that most of the Romanians who were here or Bulgarians who were here were doing fairly low-level jobs. It's not true. We have a huge number of Bulgarian doctors and highly skilled nurses and pharmacists and people who really are very skilled professionals and who've made, come here and worked within the health service. And I really, there's a serious question about what's going to happen. And the carers of our old, the carers of our old uh, who are here, the seasonal workers who come and pick, you heard it this morning on, 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 again on the radio about soft fruit. I could have told you about that. The whole of the lowlands of Scotland is covered in plastic because of the raspberries being grown and the people who are picking them are from uh, other parts of Europe where just working in that season can give them enough money to help them uh, uh, live better back home. And then there's the impact on the legal profession. There's good reason, I mean, I, I've, I've pointed out that it didn't seem to me a very attractive thing to be saying that this was not going to be good for lawyers. Who cares about lawyers? Um, but in fact, it, it does matter because we should rightly feel proud of the fact that we, have, we are a jurisdiction to which people turn. And they do so because we're not corrupt. We don't have corrupt judges. We have a great judiciary, highly, highly admired around the world, highly skilled independent lawyers and lawyering. And so there's serious concern that you know, we will not be the place to which, you know, in contracts, that people will write into contracts that they want the judgment to be um, uh, worked out in Britain. Um, and of course, at the same time, we're seeing the shift to other parts of Europe, or the likely shift of the financial sector and the banking sector. So no wonder it's being suggested that, in fact, that, that some people who are arguing for just, you know, uh, um, uh, for, for, the, for all of this, haven't engaged with so many of, of, of these issues. Um, and, and people who, who you know, are, are in a state of anxiety about what this is going to mean are saying that, that, that some people are on another galaxy, imagining that somehow uh, the best of Europe will be retained without its institutions and without legal underpinnings. This fantasy also that the Great Repeal Act will fix the problems by bringing all this law home uh, uh, and that a deal can be done without the need for any European court is going to hit the buffers because we're going to see too many areas where it's not going to be possible. These legal arrangements require reciprocity, and the courts of the European Union countries do things for us um, because we do likewise for them. And it's that reciprocity thing that's such an important piece of this. So I just wanted to say that har the harmonisation of laws across Europe has been a very, very important thing, and it's going to be very difficult. And so I have to say that I look with anxiety as to how this is going to be. Um, and I, and I, I fear for whether it's going to be we get a successful a negotiation. I think there's going to be lots of problems on the way. 
I think that we may, my guess is, that if we do secure a deal with Europe, we will find ourselves quietly signing up to a newly created court tribunal, a lesser ECJ, and we'll be given another name to basically say that we've got something different. But sadly, we're not playing a part in the creation of the law, which we have done so fruitfully so far. We should be concerned about the larger meaning also of what Europe was about, a project that was about living in peace, about forging new ways of civilizing and humanizing our world. Um, and I think that we forget that in some of this debate. Um, we have a mutually created legal heritage, and it will be clear to you from what I say in that I am someone who does feel very sad about the direction of travel. I think that uh, I now am the head of a college at Oxford, and the amount of research that is done collaboratively and the way in which it's uh, funded, it's going to be very hard for that to, to, to be. I was going to tell you a little bit about how our, Lord Chief our former Lord Chief Justice, Lord Judge, is also in a state of, of, of worry um, over the fact that he thinks that we're going to, there's going to be so much law that we're going to end up seeing a kind of diminution of, the, of Parliament, a constitutional crisis, because Parliament will not be able to deal with it, and they'll be using Henry VIII powers and secondary legislation in order to deal with it, so it will not get the scrutiny that it deserves. And so he has constitutional concerns about all of this too. So I just want to say to all of you that um, the law, the judges and the courts are now being attacked um, in many democracies. Uh, uh, Mr. Trump's attack on judges in the USA um, is joined by those in Poland on judges on, and in Hungary and Turkey. I chair the Human Rights Institute of the International Bar Association and on a daily basis um, I'm seeing the impact of undermining law of undermining law, of undermining the independence of judges, the under, uh, undermining of lawyers around the world. And I'm afraid it's the currency of our dangerous times. Deregulation for many people means attacking the very law and rules which actually protect ordinary people from the raw transactions of the market, of hyper-marketizations. Law and protections are essential. And be warned, good law is a protection that we have to preserve. The price of its loss will be very high indeed. Thank you. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.